0: Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at hastiernew.com.
1: Welcome to the Conkey Ride Home for Friday, January Fourteenth, Twenty Twenty Two. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, what is slow internet, and is it a thing we should still be striving towards? What about slow email? Plus, in some very pressing news, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has officially deregulated French dressing. And Welsh scientists have determined that masks make people look more attractive. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. I am someone who desperately wants to do all the things, yet also wants to do so much less. I want to do everything from scratch, grow it all in my hands, move slowly and rest deeply. Yet I also want to know everything, try it all and create constantly. Especially in this era of digital appetizers cluttering every screen and tempting us every moment of every day, I don't think that I'm alone. We are hungry. We're bloated. We are frenzied. We are tired. In between the endless notifications, the frequent posting, the scrolling, and the streaming, there are new trends towards vinyl records, cameras with actual film, gardening, baking bread. There's a longing for faster and slower, more and less at the same time. The pandemic, along with a growing awareness of the missteps and harm of big tech, seems to have brought some of these tensions to a fever pitch. But what to do about it, or what people en masse really want, has yet to be figured out despite a steady stream of think pieces and apps doing their level best to crack the code. And one of the latest to catch my attention is a piece in The Atlantic by contributing editor and director of the program in Film and Media Studies at Washington University, Ian Bogost, about the idea of slow email, and one app in particular that's giving it a shot. First, Bogost explains slow internet. Quote, The slow internet emerged as an idea in 2010, just as the combination of smartphones and broadband had become universal enough to make extremely online a default way of life. The movement arose largely on blogs, already a slower way of writing and reading than the social networks that would soon supplant them, and came amid a spate of interest in slow cinema and slow food. It's not just about being first and fast and superficial, wrote film critic Jim Emerson at the time. It's an opportunity to consider a spectrum of arguments and evidence." Two years later, and a month after Facebook went public, the writer Jack Chang blogged a pian to the slow web, an aspirational design philosophy that would, in principle, short-circuit the assumptions of an always-online life. He, too, drew a parallel to slow food and its turn away from mindless consumption. The internet had become impossible to keep up with. Everything happened constantly and all the time. Chang wanted information to present itself when needed, rather than being delivered in a continuous real-time feed. In 2016, when blogs were all but dead, Cheng disclaimed the whole idea. A number of the services listed below as examples of slow web are now defunct, he wrote in an update to his post, and the fast web seems today to be even faster, more frenetic, more addictive. The slow internet was over. End quote. So, Bogost argues, perhaps a slower internet isn't the answer, but rather a different one. One example of an app that's taking a different approach is Pony Messenger. Created by Dmitry Minkowski, it's meant to mimic typical snail mail. You can compose a message whenever you want, but it's placed in an outbox. Any messages you've written are sent all together just once a day, at the same time that you receive any messages that have been sent to you. Bogos calls it postal service cosplay, or slow email. It's a cool concept that echoes an oft-repeated productivity hack, turning off email notifications and only visiting your inbox during certain designated times of the day. But it has one, in my opinion, fatal flaw. It's not like an extension that locks you out of your email. It's a self-contained app. You can only send and receive messages from other users. Now, if it grows enough in popularity, maybe that won't matter, but my knee-jerk reaction would be that it makes the whole thing more of a gimmick than a functional communication platform. Maybe I'm being short-sighted, though. Minkowski did originally try to make it something that would work with email accounts, but he said he soon realized he fell into the trap of trying to fix email, something that many would argue can't be fixed. Bogost calls email the cockroach of internet software, invincible. And Minkowski points out that it will always be tied up with work, while he was trying to create something for more personal, deep connections. And I do like that the app, like email, allows you to embed images and audio files. It's not like text messaging where you feel constrained in length. The sample images on the app's website look more like blog posts. It's definitely evocative of sitting down and taking the time to write down a letter of decent length to a good friend. In all those ways, I really like it. And Minkowski isn't trying to turn it into the next Instagram or something. He's aware that he won't be able to make money in the typical way, which what Bogost calls engagement thirst traps, maybe in the apropos form of a weekly circular, in order to make it commercially viable. Not to mega-scale, but just to scale. Successful, but not a giant. Earlier in the article, Bogost draws a line in the sand between, quote, art objects that make problems visible rather than proposing viable solutions to them, end quote, and actual design innovations. He seems to imply Pony Messenger could be one of the latter, but given its function as yet another place to message with people, I personally can't help seeing it as anything other than an art object that sheds light on a problem without providing a viable solution. I mean, Bogus himself wrote a few months ago that humans are not meant to be talking to each other as much as we currently do in this online era. So how could an app that asks you to do more talking instead of supplanting existing messaging streams really be a solution to any problems? He even described using Pony Messenger himself as, quote, charming, but we don't really know what to say or how to say it end quote. What Bogus' point ultimately is, though, is less that Pony Messenger will save the day, and rather that perhaps a whole bunch of platforms with similar values could disrupt big tech enough to make the web a little bit of a nicer place. He says, quote, "...our suffering arises in part from the speed and volume of our social interactions online. Maybe we can build our way toward fewer of them." Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and TikTok and their ilk are unlikely to reduce engagement on purpose because their businesses rely on maximizing it. But newcomers don't have to play by the same rules. Pony offers a modest but realistic alternative, a somewhat novel way of doing one specific thing online slightly more deliberately than you did before. If a thousand such flowers were to bloom, perhaps the internet's landscape would become more humane. End quote. And those blooming flowers should not focus on slow, or at least not just on slow. As Jack Chang realized back in 2016, we are so far beyond slow. What we need now is different. Maybe some of that different will be apps like Pony Messenger that, at its best, pushes us to focus on what we're doing when we're doing it, and reconsider what it is we're doing anyways, or what we want to be doing, and with whom, and how. Vogost says, quote, the internet has made all information feel like a flow of the same type of material. In a way, that is the promise and consequence of digitization. Everything is bits. Software eats the world and so forth. But not all data are the same, in nature or purpose. By forcing me to receive messages no more than once a day, Pony invites me to ponder what sorts of exchanges might thrive under those conditions. That doesn't necessarily mean that Pony improves collaboration. The point isn't to build a better email or to improve Slack or Google Docs, but to find gratifying matches between human goals and technical tools. And he goes on to conclude with a sentiment I can definitely get behind, quote... We don't really know what we're doing when we correspond, and we don't really know what we want when we dream of ways to slow things down online. We're not recovering some imagined primordial state of full attention and deliberateness, nor are we abandoning the purported evils of email or Facebook. Faced with an internet that is much too big and much too fast, we'll never find a big and fast solution. Any progress will be earned, one day at a time. End quote. What exactly is French dressing? As of Wednesday, it can be anything it wants. Like ranch dressing, though lacking in quite the same following, French dressing is a uniquely American cuisine. It used to basically just mean vinaigrette, but throughout the early 20th century, it came to take on its own identity in recipes. Typically, it was made of some sort of oil, vinegar, sugar, and some combination of Worcestershire sauce, ketchup, onion juice, paprika, or similar things to give it an orange coloring and a bit of a kick. In 1950, the US Food and Drug Administration established a standard that French dressing could only be one that contained vegetable oil, vinegar, lemon or lime juice, and be seasoned with salt, sugar, tomato paste or puree, and mustard or paprika. And it should be noted that this was essentially the only specific type of dressing to be regulated by the FDA at the time. The only other two, according to the Wall Street Journal, were mayonnaise and a general salad dressing why did french dressing get singled out with its own standard of identity by the fda I haven't quite been able to figure that out, I suppose, because it was kind of a unique thing and the FDA therefore wanted to make sure consumers were protected when they sought to purchase something calling itself French dressing. In any case, on Wednesday, the FDA officially revoked the standard of identity, saying it's outdated. So now, French dressing can be whatever the heck anyone wants it to be. Or rather, they can do that on February 14th when it goes into effect. One of the stranger parts of this news, though, is that the deregulation of French dressing's standard of identity is something that some people have been fighting for for 24 years. Who knew that the salad dressing world was so spicy? quoting the Wall Street Journal. The Association for Dressings and Sauces, a trade association representing salad dressing, mayonnaise, and condiment manufacturers, petitioned the FDA to revoke the rule in January 1998. The restrictions on what constitutes a French dressing inhibited what could be created to match the desires of French dressing consumers, the petition argued. Many different types of salad dressings, Italian, ranch, Caesar, and blue cheese, were available for consumers and not affected by the The same kind of standardization, the organization said. The French dressing standard simply restricts innovation, the Trade Association said once again in a written statement Wednesday. End quote. Now the FDA hasn't commented on why it took them twenty-four years to revoke the standard of identity, you know, why now, but at least one comment on the proposed rule questioned why the FDA was prioritizing the move and Well, that probably answers the question for why nothing was done about it for two and a half decades after complaints were first filed. Because when is the right time to prioritize the definition of French dressing? Is there ever really a good time? Quoting again, the FDA said the move is related in part to the agency's efforts to modernize food standards so that the industry can innovate and produce healthier foods. The agency is also required by law to re examine its regulations. The FDA doesn't use standards of identity as a tool very often currently, said Diana R.H. Winters, deputy director of the Resnick Center for Food Law and Policy at the University of California, Los Angeles School of Law. And this change in particular may not have a huge impact on what products are all already available on the shelves," end quote. And yeah, to be clear, the name French dressing is not going away. Some companies might eventually mix up the recipes a little and still be allowed to call it French dressing, but that's about it. As The Takeout summed it up, quote, "...rather than see this as the end to French dressing as we know it, maybe we could look at this as an opportunity to innovate. Your next salad could be more modern than you thought," end quote. Well, ending the week here with just a little bit of fun, according to a study published in the journal Cognitive Research Principles and Implications, face masks make people look more attractive. And more than that surgical masks were rated as more attractive than cloth face coverings. And I can't help but wonder if maybe a lot of the participants in the study are the kind of rule followers like me who are attracted to other rule followers. You know, like, I could see the most attractive person walking down the street. But if I then see them litter instantly unattracted. And considering what we know about surgical masks and N95 masks being so much better than cloth face coverings, perhaps that's where the attraction lies for some. Or, as study co-author Michael Lewis speculated, quote, Our study suggests faces are considered most attractive when covered by medical face masks. This may be because we're used to healthcare workers wearing blue masks, and now we associate these with people in caring or medical professions. At a time when we feel vulnerable, we may find the wearing of medical masks reassuring, and so feel more positive towards the wearer end quote. He also points out that this finding is significant considering that research conducted pre-pandemic found that people were less attracted to people wearing medical face masks due to their association with illness. But now, there's been a shift in psychology. Most people associate face masks with taking precautions against illness. Lewis says this is related to evolutionary psychology and mate selection. Quoting The Guardian, The first part of the research was carried out in February 2021, by which time the British population had become used to wearing masks in some circumstances. 43 women were asked to rate on a scale of 1 to 10 the attractiveness of images of male faces without a mask, wearing a plain cloth mask, a blue medical face mask, and holding a plain black book covering the area a face mask would hide. The participants said those wearing a cloth mask were significantly more attractive than the ones with no masks, or whose faces were partly obscured by the book, but the surgical mask, which was just a normal, disposable kind, made the wearer look even better. End quote. Research was also conducted on men viewing images of women with broadly the same results, but it has not been published yet. And for the record, none of the participants were asked to specify their sexual orientations. In terms of just covering the face with anything, Lewis told The Guardian that part of the appeal may be the misdirect of attention to the eyes, or because when part of the face is obscured, the brain fills in the missing pieces. Personally, I think I still look pretty silly wearing a mask, and I don't know if this study is enough to convince me otherwise. I think I'll just keep wearing a mask to avoid attracting COVID instead of to attract a mate. But hey, whatever it takes, right? All right, well, that is it from me for this week. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday.